the whole idea that um, everybody's watching me or my work isn't good enough, that's all an excuse for not doing the work. And I know so many people who tell me that they're not going to put anything out there until it's perfect. And I'm like, you know what? You're just never going to put anything out there. And that is all a delay tactic and you just have to do it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Making Ways, the podcast all about the unexpected paths to a creative career. I'm your host, Rob Goodman, and I'm so glad you're listening to the show today. We have such a great episode with a woman who has truly led a very unexpected path to her role now as a full-time creative person. She's a printmaker and a writer and an illustrator and a designer, and it's Jen Hewitt. And I'm so glad to have her on the show today and for you guys to hear about her path to going full-time freelance and all the jobs she had along the way, what she was like studying in school, and kind of this mix of business and creative side that she's carried with her over the years, and also the teaching work she's been doing and what she learns from that experience too. Before we get started, I want to thank our partner, General Assembly, they're a phenomenal continuing ed organization. They've got campuses all across the country where you can learn any number of creative disciplines. You can learn how to code. You can learn about UX design. You can learn about digital marketing, so much more. So check out ga.co and use the offer code MAKINGWAYS. At checkout, you'll get 15% off. Okay, let's start the show. Jen, thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And I'd love to start off by hearing a little bit about what you do as a printmaker and a surface pattern designer. Great. Well, I'm also, in addition to be a print printmaker and a surface designer, I'm also a teacher and soon to be a writer. So I do a lot of work um, designing patterns as well as printing my own fabric and using that fabric for different kinds of projects that I sell. I'm also a fine art printmaker, meaning I do very limited editions or I do um, one-offs. I do some license work, meaning I create patterns on the computer um, and license those out to other companies for their use. And then I also teach printmaking. <laughs> okay. So j just that. <laughs> just that. <laughs> just, just all a lot of, of that. different things. Yeah. And I'm so excited to talk to you because you have had a really interesting path to get to where you are today and have this amazing multifaceted creative career. And I'd love to hear about maybe when you started drawing and illustrating and, and doing design, when that began for you. I can't think of a time when I wasn't drawing or illustrating or making things in my life, um, but it wasn't really until high school that I got to be interested in it, um, but I was also a really strong student academically, so I was never pushed down a creative path. I went to a very academic high school. My parents expected me to go to college and become an engineer, a lawyer, or an accountant, and so none of those things appealed to me. Um, and, and you it, grew up in California. I grew up in California in Los Angeles and, and came up here for school to Northern California. Very cool. And you, so you had these creative drives, but they were not nourished in any kind of way. Were they actually discouraged? Um, they were discouraged a little bit in terms of a professional career. I was allowed to have them as hobbies. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't fault my parents at all or my school, really, because I think when I was growing up, there were no models for successful designers or artists in our community. 
you know, we knew lots of accountants. <laughs> we knew lawyers. We knew teachers. Those were much more acceptable paths. Um, as far as my parents were concerned, being an artist or a designer was a way to make sure that you never had enough money. <laughs> so in college, what did you study? Oh, so in college, I did something incredibly impractical, and I studied English. So I have a degree in English literature with a minor in French language. Um, the only reason I was able to get away with that was that I had an academic scholarship and my parents essentially didn't have to pay for my college. I'm one of those rare unicorns who graduated without any student loan debt. And so I felt free to study what I wanted to because there were no repercussions for me, um, doing so. Yeah. I was going to ask because it, it, yeah, it seems a little off track from some of the the professional ideas that your family had for you, but they said, okay, you can go study whatever you want since it's covered and then you can figure out what you want to do with your career. Oh, they didn't say that. They just, <laughs> I, you said that two years, right. Two years into it. I said, I'm, I'm majoring in English. And my mom actually yelled and said, um, what are you going to do with that? teach, be a writer. <laughs> and it's kind of what I've ended up doing with it. <laughs> right, right. But between graduating college and now, there were a lot of years in between that in terms of your career. So walk me through a little bit of your career trajectory after school. Did you gravitate towards more of those traditional jobs to have that kind of stability? I did. Do you want the abridged version or the unabridged version? Let's let's hear all about it. <laughs> so when I graduated from college, it was 1996, and it was the tail end of a recession. So there were no jobs to be had, um, especially in more traditional industries like you know like banking or law. Um, I know that because I tried to get jobs there, <laughs> and I ended up getting a job working for a nonprofit educational organization, and I did really well there, really thrived there. Um, and I was doing leading trainings. I was doing all their design work, anything. I did fundraising, like anything you could think of that needed to be done, I would ch chip in and do it. Um, and after that, I moved to a private high school here in San Francisco and did admissions. And um, love the school, love the kids, hate high school admissions. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of brutal. But it sounds like education was always something that from the get-go you were passionate about, you wanted to help, you wanted to, to teach or be somewhere in that world. I think that's true. In many ways, for a lot of recent college graduates, education is kind of an easy path to fall into if you don't know what you're doing. Um, and that's fine. But um, yeah, I kind of fell into it and I kind of ended up loving it for a lot of different reasons. But you didn't love high school admissions, so what happened next? Well, it was around 2000, and all of my friends were leaving their teaching jobs to actually go work for dot-com, like the first wave of dot-com right, startups. Right. And they were making more money than any of us had imagined we'd make <laughs> at 26. And so I decided I was going to start my own business, and instead of doing something like super cool and tech-savvy, I started a stationary business. And I'd had this inkling for the first few years out of college that I wanted to be a designer. And I started taking classes. And I realized that what I wanted to do was not design for clients, but create products. Um, and I didn't know, again, if you don't know a path, then you just kind of have to make it up. And I didn't know how to get into that. So I 
liked illustrating and I did some illustrations and I saved up some money and I started a stationary business. And before I knew it, I had sales reps and I was going to trade shows um, and I was selling across the country and working with these big, like I worked with Neiman Marcus, I worked with anthropology. Wow. And I did that for about four years. How um, long was the run up before you started to hit some of those great partners? Oh, it wasn't long at all. It was maybe six, nine months. Great. Um, and part of that too was it was before social media. So I had something that was really new and different looking for a lot of these customers. And so I could actually be the person with the new product and it would be a new product for a good year, 18 months. Whereas now somebody puts something new out and within a month it's copied. Right. 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 So it was, it was a little bit different then. Um, and I ran that business for about four years and I was, gosh, I think I was 28 or 30 when I closed it, but I made all the mistakes you make when you're in your 20s. <laughs> so I spent more than I earned. I never controlled my cash flow. Um, I just, I got a studio before I needed to, and I was just in massive, to me, amounts of debt by the time I closed that business. So I licensed the name to another company and I licensed about half of the designs, the more successful ones to them. And then I went and got a full-time job. Um, and that was actually, I ended up going back into education, but in a different way this time. I went to an e-learning company um, that was... So you got in a little bit on the on the tech side. Yeah, a little bit on the tech side, like after the tech boom. So 2004. Okay, okay. <laughs> As people were kind of clawing back up to uh, stand up the business again. Yep. Yep. And so I was doing HR and operations and some finance for this e-learning company that did corporate uh, custom classes for corporate clients. So we were working with Cisco and Google and Symantec um, and doing really cool custom work. But I wasn't doing any of the creative stuff. I was uh, staffing up the projects. I was writing the proposals. I was doing the budgets. And so I decided that I needed a creative outlet because I knew I wasn't going to do this forever. I eventually wanted to do something creative again and make a living from it this time around. Um, but I didn't know what that was going to be. And do you enjoy both sides of the coin? Do you enjoy kind of the business and the project management and the analytical accounting kind of side of things? I do, actually. I think I have a really operational mind. Like my dad had studied to be a draftsman. And so I think there's something that's both really artistic about that and creative, but also very much has to deal with um, with process. And so you always knew you wanted to get back into the, the creative side. So what happened in terms of transitioning? Did you keep a side hustle going when you were at the e-learning company for, for art and creative explorations? Or did you just kind of flip a switch at a certain point? I think I just flipped a switch at a certain point. Um, I didn't have a side hustle going on. I was working this new job in this new industry for me, and I needed to focus for the first couple of years and kind of get up to speed and feel really confident doing what I was doing. And then once I hit that nice, stable plateau, that's when everything shifted for me, and I thought, okay, I'm working with these amazing designers, and I do nothing creative <laughs> So I decided to take a screen printing class, just like on a whim. Um, it interested me. Etsy had just come around, and so a lot of people were printing posters. And I thought, I could probably do that. 
And were you thinking that that might be a nice bridge between illustration and design or it just was like, this seems interesting. I'll check it out. I think the latter. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah. And you kind of had this like a daily kind of in your face of all these designers doing interesting things and you you being like, I can't take this anymore. Exactly. I got I got to go chase something. I got to get my hands dirty. Oh, it was so painful. And even though they were doing boring corporate work, um, yeah, there was still something really <laughs> exciting about it. Right, right. So you took that first printmaking class and where did you take it and, and how did it feel to start you know, exploring that medium. It was pretty incredible. Um, I understood because I had a stationary business, I understood color separations and layout. And I had a lot of things that I already got. So it wasn't a completely new um, process for me, but it was really exciting to me to be able to control not just the creative design part of it, but also the production, which is what I didn't have when I had the stationary company because I was always sending things off to a printer and carrying huge amounts of inventory. So suddenly I could actually, I was the one responsible for the inventory and I could print as much or as little as I wanted to. And the only investment was my time, which at the time felt cheap because I was being paid by someone else to work 40 to 60 hours a week. Um, and so I started putting things on Etsy. A lot of that work was not very good that I was putting out there, but it didn't really matter. I think it was just important for me to put it out there. And did you think that at the time or you think that now that you've been at it for, for a while? At the time, did you feel like, hey, I'm not really in love with this, but let me just get something going? Or were you happy with where you were at? Oh, I thought it was the bomb. Okay. Well, because I was going to say, I think a lot of people... Um, might feel inhibited out there listening about putting things up online or for sale if they feel like it's not quite good enough. But um, I, I'm glad you you loved it. Now looking back, you, you've obviously evolved so much. You can look at that work in a different light. But um, maybe for listeners, it's kind of important maybe sometimes to just kind of go for it, make stuff, get it up there, start getting feedback and and keep going. Well, and one of the things I had learned from having a business before was that in the early stages, no one cares. No one notices you. No one's following you. And again, this was before, really before social media. I mean, Etsy was one of the, the blogger had just come along, right? Yep. We were still calling it Web 2.0 in those days. Um, and so that flexibility was new and people were still really exploring it. And so there was a lot of experimentation and a lot of people who blogged about very, very personal things. Um, Flickr was still a thing and people would just, you weren't thinking about, I'm only going to post my very best photo. <laughs> right. People would post like 400 photos <laughs> yes, in I a remember. month. <laughs> I think there's still Flickrs like floating out there, like all our past lives are buried somewhere on a Yahoo server. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> but I like that, that uh, when you're starting out, you know, kind of assuming that there's less of a spotlight on you, that can be a little bit creatively freeing, like experiment, you know, and, and take some risks. I mean, I think you should always take risks, but maybe early on, that's kind of a nice flexibility you have. Well, and I also think the, the whole idea that um, everybody's watching me or my work isn't good enough, that's all an excuse for not doing the work. And I know so many people who tell me that they're not going to put anything out there until it's perfect. And I'm like, you know what, you're just never going to put anything out there. And that is all a delay tactic. And you just have to do it. <laughs> Otherwise, you're never going to do it. And you telling me that makes me think I'm not going to take her seriously or him seriously, because 
they're really, it's just all hot air. Well, what do you say? I mean, what do you say to get them over the hump of being like, it, it's, it doesn't have to be perfect. It, it, you know, just, just move, just move forward. I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you encourage them, I guess, to get over their own inhibitions? Oh, sometimes I don't bother to encourage people because I think a lot of times people want permission from whoever they deem to be more successful than they are to say, everything you're doing is perfect. You're all good. Go ahead and do that. And I don't feel like I can be that person or should be that person that a lot of that is really internal and just getting over yourself and putting it out there. And I... I'm fairly confident now, but I was not in my 30s. I'm 42 now, and I had to work really hard at it. And I think part of the exercise, I mean, it, it is an exercise, right? It's just constantly putting yourself out there and not being beaten down and realizing, oh, this is a muscle, right? I'm just going to keep growing it and growing it and growing it. And I think people need to go through that, um, through that process. Hey guys, I want to tell you about a really fun workshop I'm going to be running here in San Francisco at General Assembly. It's all about how to launch a successful podcast. I've had so much fun launching Making Ways and I've learned so much and I'm really excited to bring all of those lessons to you. We're going to go through planning and positioning and talking about equipment and formats and how to market and distribute Go through the whole gamut so that you have the tools you need to go out there and launch great stories and shows in the podcasting world. So go to ga.co backslash SF and click on see all workshops. Scroll down and on October 20th, you'll see my workshop about how to launch a successful podcast. And if you use the offer code making ways at checkout, you'll get 15% off. So check it out. I'm excited to share what I've learned. And if you're interested in a workshop in your city or at your company, just reach out to me and get in touch at rob at makingways.co. Okay, let's get back to the show. And so how long did you go through that process of making things and posting on Etsy while you were at the e-learning company? What was the kind of curve until you ultimately went freelance full time? Oh, I didn't go freelance full time. I got laid off. Okay. <laughs> Actually, not the push. Only, the push. I didn't get laid off. I or I did get laid off, but because I was doing the HR, I had to lay everybody off, <laughs> including myself. So I started oh, screen wow. printing. I think in that January. must have been an awkward meeting when they well, they're like, "Hey, here's the scenario." We all knew it was coming, um, and our parent company was in Australia, and so I had to prepare all the paperwork and call this conference call, and. Um, everybody came in and one of the developers came in with a big bottle of Jameson and he wrote some words on the, on the whiteboard and he said, this is a drinking game. And whenever the CEO says this, we all have to take a shot. (laughs) I can say that because now the business is totally gone (laughs) and I no longer do HR. Just a note, that is not how you do HR, Um, but it was the last day. So it was, it was a surprise and it wasn't. And I was honestly really, really relieved in many ways because I was completely burned out um, and I didn't know what to do next, but suddenly I had all this free time. And this was 2008. It was December 18th, 2008 was when we all got laid off. Um, Suddenly had all this time to go to the studio. And because it was 2008, 2009, the economy was just in this free fall. 
and there were no jobs. And I had managed to pay off all my debt and I'd saved up some money and I had unemployment coming in. And so I could coast for a little bit without a job. Um, and I looked and I looked and then finally I was like, it, it might not happen, not right away. Um, and so I started spending a lot of time at the studio and I started printing things and listing them and they started selling and my work had gotten better. Um, and some blogs had taken notice around 2009 and suddenly I was selling a decent amount of work, um, and was, was thrilled about that. But sometime in 2010, my money was just starting to run out and health insurance at that time was still very precarious. And I had very minimal health insurance, but some things were flaring up and I just needed a job. Yeah. <laughs> and so I ended up going to work for a pharmaceutical marketing company, a company doing um, proposal writing, which I had done before. Um, and I did that for all of five months. Okay. I hated that job. <laughs> um, it was the absolute wrong fit for me in terms of job, in terms of the company. I was working with sales teams that were really cutthroat um, and would stab each other in the back and stab me in the back. And after a couple of months of that, my friends came to me and said, we've started this business. We're growing. We need someone to do our HR. We know you've done that before. Would you be interested in coming and working for us maybe four hours a week as a consultant? And I thought, oh, I'm never going to be able to make it on four hours a week. <laughs> right. But sure, I will totally do this. Yeah, to escape this kind of hellish yep. uh, gig you had. And also I was now eligible for COBRA, so I could I had health insurance, like that was baked for at least a year. Nice. Um, and so I left, I went and started consulting, doing HR consulting, and I thought, well, four hours a week, I'll make up the rest of my money by going to the studio and making stuff and selling it. Yeah. Um, which ended up not happening for a while because the CFO, who was also a consultant of this company, um, referred me he liked me and referred me to a couple of his clients and they started referring me so within four or five months i had a fairly full roster of um hr consulting clients wow and so i did that for six years 2010 to 2016 okay um i would consult anywhere from that original four hours a week to i helped start a company and so that took me about 32 hours a week um which although when you're starting a company, it may only be 32 hours a week on site. It's like your entire life. So right. I did that for a year and I had a meltdown and I had to leave. <laughs> um, and the past couple of years, I started teaching my block printing classes and I started teaching online and in person. And at a certain point, the income I was making from that was fairly close to the income I was making from my consulting. So I could start to ramp down my consulting work and ramp up the teaching work. And teaching led to other things, like it led to a book deal. Um, it led to some other online classes that I teach. And that e even further, it, it grew my audience even bigger, um, and it allowed me to just fully quit consulting back in November of 2016. Wow. Congratulations. That's, that's pretty recent history that now you're completely kind of set sail on the, on the creative track. It's crazy. Yeah. It's so exciting. So over those years, was the studio part of, uh, where you were taking classes or did you invest the money in renting a studio space? I'm just curious. I have, um, a small back porch in my apartment. So completely enclosed service porch. That's about 54 square feet. 
And so I set up my own studio there. Um, I still use a shared studio space to shoot my screens, but when I'm screen printing, but I can print at home for the most part. And again, when people tell me they need studios to do all their work, like I made it work in a room that is the same size as a king bed. And I also, all my startup materials were about a hundred dollars, you know, and I still have those materials. So you can, you can do it. You can make it work. Um, and then Last year when I got the book deal, I upgraded and now I have a studio in the second bedroom of my apartment. I'd had roommates off and on. Um, and finally last year, I was like, no more roommates. I'm 42. <laughs> <laughs> I need this space. <laughs> Love it. That's awesome. And so tell me about teaching. Were you? Did you feel kind of like an expert by the time you started teaching? I'm curious kind of about that or if you had to kind of take a leap to get in front of a class and start teaching. When I was doing HR, especially for the e-learning company, I was doing a lot of small trainings on things that I wasn't necessarily um, super knowledgeable about, but I knew more than everybody else in the in the company, right? And so I that's how I feel about training or teaching for the most part is that, especially in the beginning, I didn't know a ton. I wasn't an expert and people wanted to take the class because they liked the work that I was doing and I figured I know more than they do. So even if it's just a little bit more, it's still valuable for me and it's still valuable for them. Yeah. Now I've gotten to the point where I've taught this class dozens of times and I've taught probably close to a thousand people at this point. Um, I have a fairly good sense of where people are going to be tripped up. I can tell by talking to people who's going to have a hard, harder time than others, who's going to need to be pushed. Like all of that stuff is just it comes from experience and there's nothing I could have done in the very beginning to get that except to just go out there and teach it. Um, but also as the more I've taught, the better my students have gotten. And I don't, I don't mean better, but the more skilled and the higher their expectations are. I think I had early adopters in the very beginning who were kind of learning along with me and they didn't have any idea of what the possibilities are. But now, um, surface design and block printing and relief printing, they're a thing. And so people are just much more aware of what the possibilities are and they come in with these formed ideas. And so in many ways, I got in on the trend at the right time. Either I got in on the trend at the right time or I started it Right. Um, and it's grown with me. Um, but it's it's been fascinating because the work that comes out of classes now is so much more technically and, and creatively complex than it was in the beginning. And do the students, in a way, kind of push you and your work? Do you ever kind of get to learn from them or get inspiration from the room? Oh, definitely. There are people who've done things that I didn't think were possible. I've had people who've done crazy repeat patterns. Um, a lot of times, too, I have professional artists in my class um, who aren't necessarily printmakers, but this is just something they've wanted to try out. And so especially when I've got professional artists in the class, um, that's really where I start to see what what's possible. Um, in terms of folks who are just doing this as a hobby or crafters or um, possibly kind of insecure about their own skills, I learn a lot from them too. And a lot of times it isn't necessarily technical. It's much more of a soft skill. It's how to interact with people who are insecure about their abilities, how to coach people, um, and how just to encourage everyone so that they're doing their best work. I don't know that I'm necessarily a pro at that, but 
I do feel as if everyone leaves the class really happy with what they've created. How are you managing this kind of portfolio of work and what has been the biggest challenge for you? I think the most important thing for me, maybe not for everyone else, but for me, it has specifically been to have a really diverse group of offerings. So not to spread myself thin, but because everything that I do is kind of interlinked, but not to put all my eggs in one basket. So I have um, I have some licensing, I have the book, I have teaching, I have fine art sales, I have some product sales. Like they're they all kind of play along with each other. So I think my online class, um, the more I've taught it, the fewer students I have each time, which is fine because I've also like my in-person class is still sell out and I have the book coming out. And so I know that if one thing goes away, it's not going to decimate me. And I, that's really, really important. Um, I think the other thing that's important for me too is that I kept my day job until I absolutely couldn't have it anymore. It was really important that I have a second stream of income or maybe a fifth, depending on how you look at it, um, that I wasn't relying completely on my art in order to support me. And that allowed it to grow in ways that I don't think it would have if I were relying on it for money. Um, I think especially when it comes to licensing and surface design, I have a different point of view than a lot of people do. And especially a lot of people who all they do is surface design partly because I'm not following trends, partly because I don't have to follow trends, because I can rely on all these other things to support me. I don't have to constantly be on top of whatever is hot right now in order for my work to sell. It really allowed me to develop a voice. Um, And consulting money, I've got to say, is really nice money. So you can control your hours if you're lucky enough to live in a place like the Bay Area where there are tons of consulting gigs to be had, but you, I got to set my own hours. I got to charge a very high hourly rate. I could ramp up and ramp down as I needed to. I was just really fortunate in that. So tell me a little bit about your, your point of view in terms of your art. You make such beautiful work, and people who are listening will be able to go to the website and check it out. But what's behind it for you from an artistic perspective? Oh, my gosh. It's the, it's the artist statement question. <laughs> No pressure. (laughs) So I'm really interested in landscape and in nature, which sounds like a very hokey art thing to say, except that the ways that I'm interested in these things um, have to do with reducing them to their simplest, most interesting forms. So I, while the work that I do can be technically complex um, and very layered, Often the individual prints are very, very simple, um, if that makes some makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I think on top of that, too, I also have a printmaker's idea about color. And for people who don't really understand printmaking, you're often thinking in terms of layers and color separations before you even think about specific colors. So you're figuring out what the design is going to be, how many colors you want it to be, what colors are going to go where. And then you experiment with the colors when you execute. And so a lot of times my work has very unnatural colors in very natural settings. So that's because I haven't been thinking that. I just had a show um, that was 
pictures of weeds, essentially prints, repeat patterns of all the different kinds of weeds you find in Golden Gate Park. And, and that's weeds, plural. <laughs> I know this is California. Um, <laughs> but I was thinking about the layout first. And so something like mallow, which is normally green, ended up being this bright pink color. Um, clover ended up being brown. And that was because, because I don't really care about the color in the design process. I only care about the color in the execution of it. So cool. And so you mentioned your book a couple of times. Tell me what's going to be in the book. Is it lessons about how to screen print? Is it about creative business uh, development? Tell me about the book. It is going to be called Print Pattern Sew, and it's based on a project that I did in 2015 of the same name. And in 2015, I decided I was going to block print um, fabric, so block print yardage every month, and then sew a piece of clothing using that yardage. And so the book is actually based on that project, and I teach you how to um, design your, your, your print, how to carve it, how to print repeat patterns. We have three different types of repeat patterns in there, I think. Three? Is that right? Or four? I think four. Um, I'm just proofing the manuscript <laughs> right now. I should know these things. When is it coming out? May 2018. Awesome. Nine months. Nine months. <laughs> And then it has applications for your printed fabric. So simple projects such as scarves or even shoes, um, all the way up to a jacket or a dress. Very cool. Well, Jen, it's been so great talking to you and so glad to meet you. Uh, I love your work and I'm wishing you continued success. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks so much for inviting me. Okay, that was the conversation with Jen Hewitt. Jen, thank you so much for joining the show and walking us through your experiences in your career and how you ultimately got to where you are and leading this amazing, fulfilling, kind of mixed portfolio of a creative life and profession. If you'd like to learn more about Jen and see her beautiful artwork, go to jenhewitt.com. That's J E N H E W. ETT.com. And be sure to check out our website, makingways.co. Every week I do new illustrations of our guests. I have articles there that go beyond the episode and show notes so you can really get into the details on what we discussed during our conversations. You can follow Making Ways on Twitter at making underscore ways or on Instagram at making.ways. We're on Medium. Be sure to sign up for our newsletter. For even more behind-the-scenes goodies and information about upcoming events, Making Ways is engineered by Jim Heffernan at TTO Productions. Our intro music is by The Sandworms, and we've got music by Jim Heffernan in the episode, too. Check out Jim's work as a musician and a producer at ttoproductions.com. Okay, have a great week.